0: There have been shocking moments in the Trump presidency, many of them, so many that it's actually hard to count. But if there were some kind of accounting for all the shocking moments in the Trump presidency. This one, if we have the video, would certainly be near the top of the list.
1: Just now, President Putin denied having anything to do with the election interference in 2016. Every U.S. intelligence agency has concluded that Russia did. What, who, my first question for you, sir, is who do you believe?
2: They think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today.
0: President of the United States of America, Donald Trump, standing alongside Russian President Vladimir Putin, aligning himself with Russian claims over U.S. intelligence. And denying what everyone at that point knew to be true, Russia interfered in the 2016 election. Throughout his time in office, Trump denied and downplayed and excused Russian interference in America's elections. He called the investigation into that interference a hoax and a witch hunt over and over and over again. And now Mr. Trump is set to be on trial for his own efforts to overturn the 2020 election, And his baseless claims that the election was stolen. And Trump's new defense in that case appears to be that the court should believe his claims about a stolen election. And the reason the court should believe the election was stolen is because of Russian interference. I am not joking. This is from Trump's lawyer's latest motion in the federal election case. Between January 2019 and at least December 2020, parties reportedly linked to Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service perpetrated what the SEC recently described as one of the worst cybersecurity incidents in history. On January 6, 2021, the U.S.'s cybersecurity agency deemed that this threat poses a grave risk to the federal government and state, local, tribal and territorial governments. Just for a second, imagine being Trump's lawyer and going before the court to say with a straight face that your client, Donald Trump, was just really concerned about Russian election interference and and that it was Russia's fault and not Trump's that certain Americans distrusted the results of the 2020 election. Well, that argument is part of a pair of new motions from Trump's lawyers demanding that the American government turn over thousands of documents that the defense believes will help Trump prove his case in court. And the Russian interference stuff is just really the tip of the iceberg here. Trump's lawyers want the government to turn over everything they have on federal efforts to investigate fraud in the 2020 election. They want the government to turn over anything they have regarding undercover agents at the Capitol on January 6, thereby promoting the baseless theory that the violence on January 6 may have resulted from a failed sting operation by the FBI. The defense also wants any documents or information supporting the baseless conspiracy that Joe Biden pressured Merrick Garland to indict Donald Trump. The defense wants to know if the Justice Department pressured former Vice President Mike Pence to change his testimony to prosecutors. The defense wants communications between the Justice Department and the Biden family, including Hunter Biden, who has absolutely nothing to do with this case except for the fact that Republicans apparently like saying his name a lot. It seems pretty obvious what Trump is trying to do here. Number 1, bury this judge, Judge Chutkin, in paper in an attempt to delay this trial. Number 2, relitigate the big lie and sow further mistrust in our democracy. And 3, dig up as much dirt as possible during the discovery process and use it during the campaign season. But as Trump's lawyers proceed in that three-pronged effort, we are getting new evidence that Trump himself knew it was all a lie. New excerpts from Liz Cheney's forthcoming book reveal that just two days after the 2020 election, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy told Cheney that Trump knew he had lost the election. He knows it's over, McCarthy reportedly told Cheney, he needs to go through all the stages of grief. That same day, that same day, Kevin McCarthy went on Fox News and said this.
2: And President Trump won this election, so everyone who's listening, do not be quiet. Do not be do not be silent about this. We cannot allow this to happen before
0: our very eyes. Donald Trump forced the Republican Party to go along with his election lies, even when he allegedly knew that he had lost the election. And now he is going to attempt that same strategy in a federal courtroom. Joining me now is Melissa Murray, a professor at NYU Law School and the co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Also with me is former Missouri senator and current MSNBC political analyst, the great Claire McCaskill. Um, First, Melissa, from a legal perspective, let me get your assessment of this request. It's 59 requests from the defense, 70 pages of legal motions, 300 pages of supporting exhibits asking for material that the prosecutors don't even necessarily have in their possession.
3: So as you said in the opening, Alex, uh, this is kind of a long shot for Donald Trump. I think, again, there are multiple strategies that are being pursued here. Um, The first, and I think principally, is to slow Judge Chutkin down by inundating her with paper. Um, As a general matter, defendants can ask for material that's relevant to their defense, but they can't really ask for the world. And in situations like this, it really comes down to whether or not the prosecution has withheld information that would be relevant to mounting a vigorous defense. And here, some of this seems a little bit far field. Certainly the materials on Hunter Biden that were requested do not seem relevant to the issues at play in the January 6th hearing. So delay seems to be the name of the game here, but he's also playing to another court, and that's the Court of Public Opinion. And again, you are exactly right in that a lot of this is to again begin to sow the seeds of disinformation and the idea that the election was stolen in 2020 and that the
0: 2024 election is similarly imperiled. Um, Claire, the thing that almost made my head explode was the notion that Donald Trump is deeply concerned about Russian election interference. I mean, it it really defies explanation? Would any, is anybody out there to be convinced that Joe Biden was Vladimir Putin's pick for president in 2020, especially given the state of affairs between the two men now?
4: No,
5: Um, no one is buying that except that group of people. And it's somewhere around 20 to 25 percent of America that has decided to believe whatever he says. He could say the most outlandish, outrageous, and has said the most outlandish and outrageous things, and they will believe it. But I got to tell you, looking at all these cases, and I love Melissa's take on this, you know, it makes me dizzy. We have civil cases. We have a civil cases that are in front of the D.C. Circuit and have been there for over a year after they were argued and have not been decided that, that touch on issues that he's bringing up now. Then we have other civil cases against Trump. Then we have criminal cases against Trump, both at the federal level and the state level. And all of this is swirling. It makes me dizzy. And I'm a lawyer. It makes me dizzy. All of the cases that are out there, all of the motions that are being filed, and candidly, all the appeals that will be possible. So I would really like the respected judges that are on the bench on these cases, especially those in the appellate court, what could be their excuse for not deciding Donald Trump's appeal on the issue of immunity in civil trials? Why in the world would that that circuit be taking a year to decide a
0: case? It is way outside the norm. Yeah. And we actually spent quite a bit of time talking about that yesterday in the way that these kind of Pre-trial motions have and beyond these appeals have a way of potentially really slowing down the timetable, even for an aggressive judge like Judge Chutkin, which sort of begs the question, Melissa. I mean, I assume there's a lot in this request from the defense that is laughable, but I would also assume that there's probably something in there that has some merit that could throw gum in the works, if you will. I mean, and, and it, I, do you have that sense? And and what might that be? What might be the implications of a, a sort of extended discovery process here?
3: I think that's exactly right. Um Some of this is obviously going to be outlandish some of the material that's been requested. We don't even know if the Department of Justice has that in its possession. It could be part of the government's coppers of materials, but not necessarily things that are easily accessible to the prosecution and therefore able to be easily turned over to the defense. So a really good judge, a diligent judge, and Judge Chutkin is both a good and diligent judge is going to have to sift through and separate the wheat from the chaff here. And that is going to be time-consuming. And, you know, this is a case that was meant to be lean, mean, and to move expeditiously. And this will slow it down. We have the Mar-a-Lago case, which already seems to be slowed down because Judge Cannon doesn't seem to be moving in an expeditious fashion. We have the case down in Georgia, which is slow-moving because it's so unwieldy with so many defendants. And then, of course, we have the Hush Money case, which was always perhaps— the most minimal in terms of the legal jeopardy that Donald Trump was in and also the nature of the charges themselves. But these are the two media's cases, and they're the ones that are more most likely to be slowed down by all of these lit- litigation shenanigans.
0: Yeah. And then there's the question, you know, as Melissa so artfully points out the ways in which this can derail the actual trials, there's the, the, the sort of net effect of Trump relitigating the big lie once again in an election year, Claire, right? I mean, he, in many ways, poisoned the groundwater for American democracy. And and it looks like he's going to take another turn at bat, if you will, on doing the same thing all over again, to use many mixed metaphors. When you hear that his intention is to try and drum up some sort of phantom evidence that the election was stolen, once again, how concerned does that make you as far as this broader American project?
5: Well, if there was factual evidence that this election was somehow tampered with or stolen, we would have heard about it long before now. Um, that's why I think public trials and public hearings, I think Hunter Biden was very smart to say, let's do my testimony in public. Every time they have tried to trot out something that was going to be damning, whether it was about the Biden family or whether it's about how the election was conducted, they failed. They have failed miserably. But you know why? Because they don't have the evidence. There is no evidence. If there were all the cases that have already been decided would have been decided differently. So he may try to talk about the big lie in these cases, but there's a big difference between talking about it outside of court and even referring to it in pleadings. But lawyers have to be very careful about what theories they put forward. If they know they're not truthful, they can get in trouble. And obviously if um, the guy that that hangs out at Mar-a-Lago takes the stand, uh, he has to be careful. And so it, this is this is not as easy as it looks
0: for him to try to just throw up the big lie as some kind of defense. Melissa, um, I'm reminded of comments that Judge Beryl Howell made. I believe it was yesterday you know she's a sitting judge um a federal judge she's overseen a number of January 6 cases and she said in uh, uh, it was not in a judicial context but at an event this week she quoted um heather cox richardson the boston historian um who writes in her new book that the america is at a crossroads teetering on the brink of authoritarianism and she echoed Richardson's sentiment that big lies are springboards for authoritarians. I mean, the timing on that quote and this sort of insight into Trump's strategy here is chilling. And I wonder how unusual it is for a sitting judge to make remarks like that in a moment when, when a number of judges in sort of unrelated cases are saying quite unequivocally that Trump either incited insurrection or is guilty of, of federal crimes. Well,
3: certainly wasn't coincidental, Alex, that Judge Howell made these remarks. Again, it was made to a group of women lawyers. She was receiving an award. Um, Lisa Monaco also received an award, and Loretta Lynch presented those awards. But um, she was very clear that you know the threat of authoritarianism is not an idle threat. It is one that lies beneath these big lies. I'm um, sowing sowing the seeds of distrust around elections when we know and Trump knew and members of the Trump administration said and averred that the election of 2020 was among the most secure in American history. It was a lie to say that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump. But again, this is what breeds authoritarianism. And again, the 2024 election is one where I think American democracy very much is on the table. And it's not just about the United States. We are seeing the threat of rising authoritarianism all around the world in various countries that previously had been solid democracy. So this is not an idle threat. The United States leads on these questions, and other nations will take our lead and
0: follow it as well. Melissa Murray, Claire McCaskill, thank you both for joining me tonight. I appreciate it. We have some breaking news this evening. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has passed away at the age of 100. Kissinger served as America's top diplomat under presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Our own Lester Holt has a look back at his life.
6: Thank you. Nice to see you all. He was brilliant, ambitious, controversial and one of the most influential secretaries of state in American history. I think we made further progress. Henry Kissinger served Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and was consulted by presidents of both parties on international issues throughout his life.
2: Henry Kissinger has been a friend of mine.
6: Nixon made him a national figure, and together they reimagined U.S. foreign policy, detente with the Soviet Union, relations with China, Shuttle diplomacy in the Middle East. Kissinger helped shape Nixon's policy in Vietnam and negotiated an end to the war, famously declaring success prematurely just days before the 1972 election. We believe that peace is at hand. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Nothing that has happened to me in public life has moved me more than this award. Though his co-recipient, North Vietnam's Le Duc Tho, declined the honor. Four years later, President Ford awarded him the Medal of Freedom. He was a master of pragmatic, big picture diplomacy, but he had his critics, who described him as manipulative and insecure. Some called him a war criminal for his role in bombing Cambodia and widening the war in Vietnam. Born in Germany in 1923, Kissinger's Jewish family fled to America as Hitler rose to power. He became a U.S. citizen, served in World War II, and earned a Ph.D. at Harvard, where he became a professor. He caught the eye of Richard Nixon, who made him National Security Advisor, then Secretary of State, the only person ever to hold both jobs simultaneously. There is no country in the world where it is conceivable that a man of my origins could be standing here next to the president of the United States. But their relationship was complicated, and White House tapes reveal that Kissinger sometimes enabled the worst in Nixon. It was a very curious relationship because we were not personally very close. The night before he resigned in disgrace, Nixon asked Kissinger to kneel and pray with him. And of course it was a crushing event, but I think of that evening as an experience with dignity and it was very moving. Kissinger was no faceless bureaucrat. He was a world-renowned celebrity. I loved your foreign accent. And he loved the spotlight. He was even something of a pop culture icon. After leaving government, he opened his own consulting firm, remaining active and sought after for decades. At 95, eulogizing John McCain's life, Kissinger sounded a wistful note about his own.
1: Like most people of my age,
6: I feel a longing for what is lost, and cannot be. Let's do it. Henry Kissinger was a man of great accomplishment and controversy. But as he once told NBC's Barbara Walters, he had no regrets. If I had to do it over again, I would do again substantially the same way, which may make me unreconstructed. It may be one reason why I'm at peace with myself. Lester Holt, NBC News,
0: New York. Henry Kissinger was 100 years old. We will be right back.
2: Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024, The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate and more so you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.
5: Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. There are
6: a quarter of a million more jobs in Colorado since I took office. That's a quarter of a million more people throughout this state, including in this district, who can look their kids in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay.
0: That was President Biden speaking today at what is now the largest wind tower manufacturer in the world in Pueblo, Colorado. The company that owns that plant is headquartered in South Korea, and it's used to, it used to make all of its wind, wind towers abroad. But incentives from Biden's Inflation Reduction Act reportedly convinced this company to make a $200 million investment in that plant in Colorado and thereby creating 850 new jobs in the state. By all the standard metrics, the economy under President Biden is doing great. Inflation is slowing. The GDP is growing. The unemployment rate is just 3.9 percent. But when Americans are asked about how they feel about the state of the economy, things do not seem so bright. A New York Times Siena poll from earlier this month found that in six key battleground states, 81 percent of registered voters described the state of the economy as either only fair or poor a whopping 93% of registered voters under 30 felt the same. For this White House, that is particularly concerning because Biden voters in 2020 skewed younger, and this poll was specifically looking at younger voters in battleground states. So what explains the disconnect? The odds are low that many people under 30 were watching today as President Biden spent more than 20 minutes listing all the ways his administration has improved the economy. But surveys show that the odds are high that young voters are getting their economic news from social media videos like these. I heard a new term on TikTok today that made me stop in my tracks. We are
2: living in the silent depression and I'm going to explain what I mean.
0: To buy a new car in 1930 would have been about $860. It's worth about 15 grand. The average cost of a new car today is $48,000.
1: New cars are unaffordable. New houses
2: are unaffordable. To move to a new place and rent somewhere else is unaffordable.
0: How could we be living through worse cost of living and wages than 1930? And no politician, no media outlet, no one is talking about it. That's Bidenomics. <laughs> Now, those TikToks failed to mention that in in the 1930s, you would probably not have had a job to pay for one of those $860 cars, because unemployment literally peaked in 1933 at almost 25 percent. And now it is at just 3.9 percent, and wages are finally outpacing inflation. But as one economic analyst, analyst put it to The New York Times earlier this month, we are in a vibe session. That's the word, vibe session. All the normal economic metrics show a strong economy, but the vibes are off. So what does that mean about the lived economic reality for American voters? And how can President Biden convince the American public that his plans are actually working? Chris Hayes joins me here next to discuss. Today, former President Trump published this op-ed in Newsweek. I will make America great again for young people. It is filled with a lot of amazing claims. But my favorite is Trump touting his credentials by saying that under his leadership, the price of gasoline went down to one dollar and eighty seven cents a gallon. That is amazing because the only time the national average gas price dropped that low under President Trump was in March of 2020. What else was happening in March of 2020. One place you can expect to find a bit of relief during this pandemic is at the pump. The coronavirus has been driving down gas prices.
2: The good news is gas is incredibly cheap right now, 223 at this station, just outside of Chicago. The bad news is many Americans aren't able to take advantage of it, especially in states like Illinois where shelter in place orders have been implemented. You might be paying attention to the gas prices falling, but we wanted to know if coronavirus could spread onto the gas pumps that you are touching. Turns out it sure can.
0: Joining me now is my friend and on-air co- neighbor and colleague, Chris Hayes, host of All In with Chris Hayes right here on MSNBC and host of the Why Is This Happening with pod. Correct. That I have yet to be invited on to, but we'll talk about that later off camera. It's one way to lower gas prices, right? I mean, you may mismanage a global pandemic and What's great about that is that it per- there's perfect
2: continuity between that and the TikTok you played where she's talking about how how cheap everything is in 1930. And it's like, yeah, stuff was cheap <laughs> yes. in 1930, like for sure. Everything else was, it was kind of way falling apart. Cheap in 1930. But this this sort of gets at the point, I think, a, a number of points. One is People don't act, don't like rising prices and, and pr- prices have been rising. So it's on some, some level, like it's not super rocket science, right? Like that level of frustration. And even when you say, look, the prices have been, you know, inflation has been coming down, you know, inflation is the rate of growth. The yes. rate of growth has been coming down. So like people are not noticing rates of growth. They're noticing levels. But at the same time, when you're thinking about like the question of has this person done a good job in macroeconomic policy? The comparison set, which is every OECD country and every peer country, we are doing so much Amazing better than email. everyone. And the reason, again, this gets back to the coronavirus point. The reason things have been hard to manage is because we had a once-in-a-century disruption. That thing that happened in March in 2020, which is, I think, for a variety of reasons— Been underappreciated, and it's after.
0: Yeah, I mean, people don't want to hear about it. They're like tired of hearing about it, and they are not looking at as a causal sort of. That's exactly right.
2: It's like, oh, it's it's twenty twenty three. What do you mean, like that? Like houses are expensive now because coronavirus. It's like, right, houses are expensive now because we had huge inflation, so the Fed hiked rates.
0: And the rates are going to come down, and that will create a seller's market. And right, then it's, it's also—the like, housing stock still is still not going to get—we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. But I also think it speaks to a larger, weirder, more intractable dynamic between Republicans and Democrats, right? Biden is shepherding through this economy that is actually incredibly good on its face. Yes. And yet he has to deal with the vibe session. Yeah. Like this kind of ephemeral, unspoken, but very real narrative that things are not good. Trump— is literally lying about his accomplishments in the pages of Newsweek and has— the confidence of the party. like what? Well, first of
2: all, we saw this a little bit in the polling where there's a huge partisan split. So there were Democrats who in 2019 would be like, yeah, the economy's good under Trump. Whereas the day that Biden became president was like, so Republicans are just going to answer in a purely partisan term. So you've already got this weird waiting that's
0: happening in the polling. Yes, but then why don't Democrats answer in a purely partisan?
2: Right, because they're different, right? Because there's a huge asymmetry. And I think also it, it gets this point about when you talk about 2020 and Trump, I do think that one of the weirdest dynamics that set in that is that is creating the vibe session is like Donald Trump was present in 2020. Right. Like people, do people know that? You know, you know that. Right. Like it's like everyone, because it was so traumatic, everyone like it's just cut off 2020 from their memory and put it in some lock box. vault. Yeah. Some box. And so it's like people are like 20 and things are pretty good under Donald Trump in 2019.
0: Right, they, but it's, it's like lacuna. It's it like... is a
2: complete lacuna, and so there's this weird effect that set in because the the macro economy in 2019 was doing pretty well. It finally dug out from te- a decade, yes. you know, that had been lost. It had been set on its path by Barack Obama. It had sort of gone up. Donald Trump had done things to mess with it that didn't successfully mess with it, and so you've got this very weird situation, which because of the the, the intensity of the trauma of COVID, yeah. I really think people have this strange attenuated sense of it and and whether it existed or not and who was responsible for what. Well,
0: and I also just think when you are punching at shadows, like something that's being called in the pages of the New York Times, a vibe session, it makes it incredibly difficult to combat that narrative. Uh,
2: Yes, and you particularly see this in the coverage where there is this constant focus on whatever the next negative thing is. So it's like, you know, you'll see people be like, Eggs, 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 eggs. Eggs are so expensive. Eggs and bacon are so expensive. Turkeys, you're going to pay through the... This year, turkeys were lower than their 2019 price. Eggs are down in real terms. I mean, not like they've gone up less, like they're actually down. No one does the local news story about... Look how cheap eggs are. Yeah. Right. So you've got this one way ratchet. And, you know, we say in the business, we don't cover the planes that land. Like there is a disposition towards negative news. Yes. Right. I
0: mean, I haven't covered the price of eggs, The uh, cheap eggs. Exactly.
2: Ever. You haven't done. Right. Because who's going to lead their segment with like eggs are cheap. But it's I'm like, like you. I've you done. Have. I have done eggs are cheap You are doing the
0: yeoman's work of the Biden administration. But it makes this campaign remarkably complicated for this this president.
2: It is, except for this. I mean, you saw this in some of The New York Times reporting on this. where They, they went and they talked to voters who are Biden voters and, and are disapproving the economy. There actually is a pretty good story to tell. Yeah. I mean, I really say this as someone who's very invested in domestic and macroeconomic policy, who's had very strong views on them for more than a decade. I've been working in journalism and have watched mistakes made at the highest level in the wake of the Great Recession, the Obama administration. Yep, There is a very good story to tell about navigating an impossible set of challenges basically better than any other leadership in the world yeah. over the last three and a half yeah,
0: years. Yeah, that's the key. It's compared yeah. to everybody else, too. And, well, I mean, if it, there's always the Republican Party that's quite good at shooting itself in the foot. I mean, if they, if, if they knew what was good for them in 2024, it'd be all economy all the time. But instead, they have to keep going back to social issues and abortion.
2: And Donald Trump was just like, hey, we're also going to get rid of Obamacare, which is yeah. just like the most incredible gift yes. to the Democratic Party.
0: So there's always that. Chris Hayes, my friend, thank you for staying late this my Wednesday pleasure. evening. I appreciate you yeah, and you. Uh, and your egg reporting. Thank you. <laughs> we have much more ahead this evening, including the exodus of lawmakers from Capitol Hill. What's driving them out? I have a few ideas. But first, more Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners were released on what has been expected to be the last day of that ceasefire. Could there be more ahead? That's next. Today, on the sixth and possibly final day of the extended ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, 14 hostages were released from Gaza, four Thai nationals and 10 Israelis, including an American dual citizen. Liat Benin is just the second American freed as part of this deal. The first was four-year-old Abigail Eden. Also released today were two Russian Israeli citizens, 50-year-old Elena Trupanov and 73-year-old Irina Teti, seen here walking arm-in-arm in a video released by Hamas. Their release was outside the framework of the agreement. Since the ceasefire began, 97 hostages have been exchanged for 210 Palestinians held in Israeli prisons. In Doha, officials from Israel, the U.S., Qatar and Egypt continue talks to extend the ceasefire a second time, with the hopes that these pauses could pave the way to ending this war. But Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has made clear that the war will continue whenever the truce ends. In a video statement today, he said, there is no way we are not going back to fighting until the end. Joining me now is my friend and colleague, Eamon Mohadeen, host of Eamon on MSNBC. Eamon— I mean, Netanyahu seems pretty clear on this one. Why? I mean, is it is it just vague hope that this could extend and lead to an off ramp in this war?
1: No, I think there is now real hope. Um, I think obviously we're coming close to the deadline of the second or I should say the first extension of the of the second day. But it's important to note the reason why there is hope is because. The mechanism that has been established to release hostages through diplomatic negotiations has so far worked. This has been the largest amount of hostages that have been released since the war began on October 7th. Uh, and so there is hope that um, Israel will stay committed to this, that Hamas will stay committed to this, to release the remaining hostages. Now, here's the tricky part, because we've been speaking to sources throughout the day, and it's going to come down to once— uh, Both sides are done with the release of civilians that are women and children. And you start getting to the next group group of people, what the parameters of those are going to be. For example, uh, when you ultimately get to the issue of soldiers and reservists and women who are uh, soldiers or perhaps those who could have served or have served, then it becomes, I think, a little bit trickier because Hamas's demands are going to go up. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not Israel uh, meets those demands or gives its own demands.
0: I I do. (laughs) It, it's clear that President, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has the external pressures from uh, beyond, including the United States, to not go back or go back surgically into Gaza, and then the internal pressures from right-wing hardliners uh, that surround him to keep the war going. When he says, we are going to keep doing this until the end, do, you, do any of us have a clearer picture of what that actually means?
1: I don't think we do. And I think that's why there is this growing concern now among U.S. officials who are um, uh, talking to their Israeli counterparts about this and certainly starting to now appear in the public discourse in American media. The president today with a very interesting tweet that I think a lot of people interpreted to suggest that perhaps this means there is a shift in the at least the public language that the administration is going to use about Israel's conduct, because the president was very clear about this. I don't know if we have the tweet. We
0: do. We we can pull it up right now. Hamas unleashed a terrorist. I assume this is what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Unleashed a terrorist attack because they fear nothing more than Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in peace. To continue down the path of terror, violence, killing and war is to give Hamas what they seek. We can't do that.
1: And, And it's that second part of that tweet, the part that says going down the terror, the killing, the violence and war is giving Hamas what it seeks. So in some ways, what he is uh, suggesting is that giving this war more life is exactly what Hamas wants and you're playing into Hamas's hands. And so could this now be the opening of a public shift in the way the administration talks about Israel's conduct, uh, in the way it's been uh, executing this war. And the concern has been this war, over the first eight weeks or so, 55 days now, has been focused on the northern part of the Gaza Strip. You're talking about 15,000 people, uh, more than 70% women and children. That's just the northern part. They've told two million people to squeeze themselves into the southern part of Gaza. Now the Israeli media is reporting that the prime minister and the IDF are shifting their focus and their attention to begin operations in the southern part of the Gaza. What happens to two million people who are trapped in the southern part of Gaza that are not able to return to the north, whose homes have been destroyed and are now trapped because the border with Egypt is not open?
0: Well, and I'm sure Egypt has thoughts about attacking the southern border of Gaza. Uh, Let me ask you, as the Biden administration appears to be sort of shifting its public stance on this, how much you think there is a a, a calculation at hand, given the new numbers that are out um, among just rapidly declining support for the president among Arab Americans. I mean, these numbers are fairly staggering, right? Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, all states that have sizable Arab populations. Michigan, Biden won it by 154,000 votes. The Arab population in that state is 278,000. Arizona, he won it by 10,000 votes. The Arab population, 60,000 votes. Folks, And these are inexact numbers, right? Georgia, 11,000 votes was Biden's margin of victory. There are 57,000 uh, people in the Arab population. These are these are numbers that if they flip or don't if these folks do not right. come out and the, his approval numbers among Arab Americans are, are are have cratered because of this, the situation in Gaza. Um, this is the kind of thing that could really actually affect the election in in a meaningful way.
1: This is a very uh, ominous sign for the president. At the end of the day, the president is a politician. He wants to get reelected. If you are a political advisor to the president, you are seeing this and you see alarm bells going off. Because the other part of that is that the Arab Arab American population that can vote in this country and the Muslim population that can vote in this country have been extremely disappointed with the with the president. Um, in terms of how this administration has been uh, executing or supporting uh, the war, executing the war and supporting it publicly, I should say. Um, and, and the consequence of that is for the administration is twofold. One, there, there is still a year out, so they could change that. Um, they could perhaps try to put together some kind of uh, peace conference, peace summit to try to mobilize the international community for Palestinian statehood. Mm-hmm. Is that likely to happen? No. But that could be an opening or something that could allow for these numbers to recover. But the second part of that is really that Arabs and, and certainly Muslim Americans, they know what the alternative is. And the alternative is Donald Trump. Yeah. And so they find themselves in this situation where they're not going to vote for Donald Trump. And obviously I'm speaking in generalities here, but th- they know that. Donald Trump is dangerous to not just America, but specifically Muslims. He wants to ban Muslims. He's probably, he would probably be worse on uh, Gaza than President Biden has in the eyes of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans. But that is not to negate how they feel in this moment, because the sentiment and the polling suggests that they, if they don't go to Joe Biden, they're going to sit the election out. And if they sit the election out, the consequences uh, will be dire for President Biden. And part of that motivation is, is because they want to be taken seriously and they want to be heard. And that is one of the main reasons they feel this administration has not heard them up until this point on this issue of the Gaza war.
0: We are, if you can believe it, less than a year away from another presidential election. Um, My friend Eamon Mohadeen, host of Eamon, right here on MSNBC Weekend Nights, it is always great to hear from you. Thanks, Alex. Still ahead, another member of Congress is leaving Capitol Hill for good, and it's not George Santos today you are going to talk to Congresswoman Anna Eshoo about why she is retiring now. That's next. After a panoply of extensive and unusual lies amid federal indictments charging conspiracy, wire fraud and false statements to the FEC, among other crimes, it seems that finally Congressman George Santos will be leaving the U.S. House of Representatives. He is expected to be formally expelled from the lower chamber on Friday in a vote that is likely to have significant bipartisan support. Mr. Santos is not alone in his departure. Now, no one else has lied about volleyball careers or Broadway credentials or Chinese kidnapping plots. No one else other than Senator Bob Menendez is under federal indictment. And no one else is getting expelled. But a whole lot of Congress people are leaving. A surge of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are leaving Washington, precisely at the same time as Republican dysfunction becomes a way of life on Capitol Hill. Connection? Maybe. One of them is Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, Democrat of California, who is leaving after more than 30 years in the House. Joining me now is the Congresswoman herself, Anna Eshoo of California. Congresswoman Eshoo, thank you so much for being here. First, let me ask you, why leave now?
4: Well, I think it's time. Uh, And contrary to, uh, uh, you know, the mess in Washington and uh, people fleeing, uh, I'm really not running away from the Congress. Uh, I think it's time. At the end of this term, uh, I will have represented my constituents for 32 years in the House of Representatives. So uh, I've experienced a great deal. Uh, It's really the highest honor and privilege of my life. Uh, And my constituents have been, uh, uh, you know, I mean, for them to place their trust in me uh, over, uh, you know, three decades, uh, I'm enormously grateful. But I just uh, felt something inside this time, a tug uh, that I haven't felt before. Uh, So it's time.
0: You've served your country so loyally, and nobody—I certainly don't mean to diminish that at all, and I I think most of us, if not all of us, can absolutely understand why 32 years is sufficient. (laughs) But there have been a lot of departures um, announced this year. I believe we're up to 30 House seats that are opening up, Mm -hmm. and I wonder if you could tell us sort of how you've seen Congress change and the work of Congress change from the start of your career until now.
4: Well, It it has changed, and it has changed dramatically. Uh, You know, there's always been uh, heated, robust debate. And the House of Representatives is a rough and tumble place, uh, which I love. Uh, But uh, at the end of those debates, uh, consensus would be developed. And we don't have that now. Uh, and this is not just a messy story out of Washington, D.C. Uh, I have really seen uh, the, the near collapse of what I understood to be the Republican Party. Republican Party, and I'm a devout uh, Democrat, but the Republican Party has produced uh, great leaders for our country, uh, it was a great party. So to see uh, a great party... Uh, uh, really just uh, more than chipped away at is very sad. And it's dangerous as well, uh, because our system uh, depends on two functioning parties. And uh, when one party is uh, in the majority or the other, uh, they have to be devoted to governing. Uh, But that's not the case now. I wonder if you could, for folks who
0: are out there and don't understand why, people still run for office and why Democrats still feel the work is worth doing, even when the mm-hmm. other party is nonfunctional. Tell us what it has meant to you f- to serve in Congress for these last 30-odd
4: years. Well, I think there's something uh, deeply embedded in us uh, that we want to serve, that we want to do something for uh, for our country. Uh, I guess my mother and father would say it's patriotism, Uh, but uh, that public service uh, is a calling. I believe that it is a calling. And uh, so it, you know, it's something that runs very deep. Now, uh, they're very tough jobs, too. I mean, you have an enormous amount of Of responsibility. And the job is really 24 7. So many constituents uh, have asked me over the years, how do you balance your public life with your personal life? And I said, there isn't a balance. (laughs) Uh, This job, uh, this job and its responsibilities have to come first. Uh, But it is, um, uh, I think, a great blessing.
0: Well, we are all lucky as a country to have had you in that seat for this long. Oh, you're so
4: nice. Thank you. Thank Thank you, you.
0: Congresswoman Anna Eshoo. Thank you you for your time tonight. Thank you for your time Mm -hmm. these last three decades. Thank you. That is our show for this evening.